Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Options Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards, as I say now, is off building the portal, which is really true. It's really amazing. Soundhealthportal.com, where you can go and if you go to the portal now, if you go to Sound Health Portal now and you look at services and then you click on campaigns, you'll see some of the free campaigns, meaning that they rotate through them. And there has been PTSD and <laughs> makes me laugh every time. Golf. You can actually improve your golf swing by taking a vocal print and seeing where things are out of balance and correcting those. And people actually are reporting back improving their swing. That's amazing. As well as there was smoke attack for a while because we were because of the fires in California. So I'm not sure exactly what's up there now, but you can go there, sign up for a free account. They don't spam you. They don't sell you information. They just have it so that they can email you the report. You do two 45-second vocal recordings right through the computer. You choose the campaign that you want to have your vocal report done on. And when I say vocal report, that's they take that recording of your voice, run it through the software, and it runs it through the program, and you'll get a lengthy report of information. They'll email you within a couple of hours, typically. I've had to wait up to 10 at the most. And you'll have a boatload of information to sit down and have a cup of tea and or take to your healthcare practitioner and talk about, like, what do you think about this? What about that? It's an amazing amount of information. And when you see uh, live demos with Sherry doing, and I know that there are some replays of those demos available at soundhealthoptions.com or services, you can see a live demo where she'll take somebody's vocal print on air and run it through the process and the kinds of forms and charts and amount of information that can be gathered just from a vocal print is amazing. And the kind of uh, workups that are now being done because it's a visual process now in a certain way, it's really quite extraordinary how much information can be gathered and how you can see it pretty simply once you begin to understand what it is. For me, the trick is to not try and stop and think about what Sherry is demoing, but go back and look at it later so I can look at it again repeatedly, because sometimes it's just, wow, a lot of information. And also there is at the soundhealthportal.com, you can use the nano voice there for free. And the nano voice is the, um, I'll call it simpler program. It's the foundation. And Sherry gave the software for Nano Voice away for free. Now I think you can purchase it at soundhealthoptions.com. But at the soundhealthportal.com, you can use the Nano Voice, and you, again, record a 30 to 40-second recording of your voice. And what I use it for is when I want to test a supplement or a food that I want to either challenge or see if it's having a one way or other effect on me. I'll say a supplement. I'll go in and I'll take a vocal print which is just a vocal recording, uh, run it through the software, have that set aside. I'll add the supplement. I'll wait 20 or 30 minutes, then I will go back and do another vocal print using Nano Voice. And you can see differences in the, in the report and also in the visual part of the report, which gives you charts and also a waveform. And you can see if there's a spike or a low point or something happened in, in your vocal print that indicates there was a shift any direction, just showing you that like, oh, wow, that, that really did something or didn't do something or, oh, I didn't know it did that. The nano voice is great. So all that can be found at soundhealthportal.com. Every week I say this and I'm going to keep saying it. This is uh, one of those shows about 15 minutes after I end the show here, you'll be able to go to soundhealthoptions.com click on radio and then click on sound health radio and the replay link will be there. And, or you can wait about 10 to 15. Well, with podcast aggregators like Google podcasts, stitcher, Podcatcher, Dogcatcher, all sorts of catchers and iTunes or my personal favorite pocket cast. You can go to any of those and either search for Sherry Edwards or Talk to me, guy, all one word, and you'll find hundreds of hours of shows. And this show will be there with Brian Wilson, which is an amazing story. Who knew? And with that, 
Purveyors of spiritualized medicine have been legion in American religious history, but few have achieved the superstar status of John Harvey Kellogg in his Battle Creek Sanitarium. In its heyday, the sand was said to be a combination spa and Mayo Clinic. Funded in 1866 under the auspices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and presided over by the charismatic Dr. Kellogg, it catered to many well-heeled health seekers, including Henry Ford, John D. Rockefeller, and Presidents Taft and Harding. It also supported a hospital, research facilities, a medical school, and a, a nursing school, several health food companies, and a publishing house dedicated to producing materials on health and wellness. Rather than focusing on Kellogg as the, as the eccentric creator of cornflakes or a megalomaniacal quack, Brian C. Wilson takes his role as a physician and a theological innovator seriously and places his, his religion of biological living in an ongoing tradition of sacred health and wellness. With the fascinating and unlikely story of the sand as a backdrop, Wilson traces the development of this theology of physi physiology from its roots in antebellum health reform and Seventh-day Adventism to its ultimate accommodation of genetics and eugenics in the progressive era. Brian joins us to talk about Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the religion of biologically li biological living. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Wow. Cornflakes. <laughs> such a long – this is – after reading the book, it really makes the cornflakes seem like such a tiny part of it. It's just that we – I'll say we for me. When, we, when you hear Kellogg, you think cornflakes. Yep. But there's this amazing – wow. Yeah. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg. Who knew? I, I actually emailed that to you. <laughs> I said, like, who knew John Henry Kellogg? Wow. No, it's so, an amazing story. Yeah. It's an amazing story. So as a historian, what got you interested in John Harvey Kellogg? Well, um, a couple of things. Um, I mean, like you, um, the only thing I really knew about Kellogg was the cornflakes because I, I grew up eating, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes every morning. I grew up in California, so I really didn't know anything about the Midwest and basically the only two places in Michigan I knew about were Detroit because that's where the cars come from and Battle Creek because that's where the cereal comes from. But um, when I became a, 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 got my PhD in religious studies and became a historian of American religion, I got very interested in new religious movements. So, um, you know, uh, movements that are kind of made in America, things like uh, Seventh-day Adventism, Mormonism, and spiritualism, and things like this. And when I was looking around for a project, uh, I, I, I'm located, I'm, I'm based in Kalamazoo, Western Michigan University, and right down the road is Battle Creek. And I had no idea at that point uh, what an interesting place this would be. And I first started studying spiritualists in Battle Creek um, because it was founded by Quakers who then became spiritualists. And then very quickly, uh, you can't study Battle Creek without studying Seventh-day Adventism because that's where the tradition began. And once you start studying Seventh-day Adventism, you can't help but run into Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And for me, it was great because uh, Kellogg himself was a theological innovator, um, but my initial undergraduate degree was in medical microbiology. So I've always had this interest in um, medicine and science. And here was a guy in the 19th century who worked very hard to harmonize science and religion, or in this case, medicine and religion. And it came up with, you know, it, it engendered for him all sorts of interesting conflicts and compromises. And meanwhile, he's creating this great health and wellness institution and, and creating products like um, like the cornflakes. So it was it was a story that was, you know, too good not to be told. And who was John Harvey Kellogg before the sanitarium before Battle Creek Sanitarium. Was he mm -hmm. a figure in the world before that all started for him? No, not really. But his career at the sanitarium actually began quite early. He was 24 uh, when wow. he was made the superintendent. But nobody would have expected it. He was um, uh, he was a he was a bright kid. 
Uh, he was um, son of one of the first Seventh-day Adventists in Battle Creek, a guy named John Preston Kellogg. Um, but John Harvey really wanted to become a school teacher. Um, that was his goal. And uh, he thought he was going to go off to the state normal school and, you know, get a teaching degree and spend the rest of his life teaching um, high school or, or at, at that point, I guess, primary school. But at a certain point, the Seventh-day Adventists had set up something called the Western Health Reform Institute. And it was a place, and we can talk more about that because that's an interesting story, but they needed doctors um, to run this place. And so um, they rounded up uh, a number of um, Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, at that point, they were teenagers uh, to send off to a medical school and get their degrees and come back and work in the, in the health institute. Well, the place they sent them was this hygiotherapeutic institute, which was a hydrotherapy school. So it, it taught you how to do the water cure. And they somehow talked uh, John Harvey into going. And he really didn't have any interest in the beginning because he said, you know, I can't be a doctor because uh, I hate the sight of blood. Well, it was, I guess, too good of an opportunity for him. So he went and uh, got his MD in quotes in six months because that's the kind of place wow. this was. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> yeah, well, he, wow. he comes back to Battle Creek and he basically says, you know, if you really want me to be a doctor, you need to send me to a real medical school. And uh, the Adventist leadership at that point said, okay. And they sent him off to the university of Michigan and then off to Bellevue hospital in New York, which was the, at that point, the nation's, you know, um, greatest uh, uh, teaching medical school, hospital medical school. Mm. And this was 1870s. So he was born in, in 1852. And so he was, he's off at Bellevue from 74 to 75. And so when he comes back the next year, he's 24 years old, but he's actually the best trained Adventist physician there is. And so they say, hey, you can be the superintendent of the Western Health Reform Institute. And he said, great, and he never looked back. And that's what developed into the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And was – I don't think this word really goes with Kellogg, but it, as you're talking about him, it seems like he must have been this way. Was he charismatic? How did, I'm trying to get the, like, how yeah. did he become the guy? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, all the descriptions of him, you wouldn't think he was charismatic. He was only uh, five foot four. And as a kid, he was terribly thin because he, he um, suffered from um, lung ailments, probably, you know, a touch of tuberculosis. And he also suffered from rickets, so he was bow-legged. Uh, and later in life, he filled out, so he became quite plump. So he was short and plump. And he had a, a very, I guess, high squeaky voice. But there is a force of personality there that was just incredible, even from an early age. Uh, and so he managed, you know, through this force of personality to basically make his way. And once they gave him the, um, the superintendency of the health institute, um, he just he had this grand plan, this vision for what he wanted to do. And, uh, you know, for for decades afterwards, he continued to develop this idea. From reading the book, that was one of the, the things that really rang through to me was that he was an amazing – let me say this as a disclaimer. Agree mm -hmm. with him or not. Yes. <laughs> we'll yes. get into the colon thing later. Agree with him yes. or not. Um, he was an amazing visionary because yes. how else could you have this amazing machine – and I mean that in a, in a good way, the Battle Creek mm -hmm. Sanitarium – I mean, it was just amazing the facility that he created with his vision. What did the did the Seventh Day Adventist Church have a a goal or ideal of the sanitarium before he took charge, or did he just come sort of swinging in at the right moment and begin like, and over there we'll build the West Wing for hydrotherapy? <laughs> well, yeah, I think um, I don't think the Seventh Day Adventists at that point um, thought in such grand terms. Um, because the Western Health Reform Institute was originally created to teach Adventists how to um, eat a vegetarian diet 
and how to treat disease using uh, the water cure or hydrotherapy. And so the original building was literally a repurposed um, two-story farmhouse. I mean, it's a very modest structure. Wow. Um, but very quickly, they realized it, it became very popular, and Adventists and non-Adventists came uh, to attend the, the Health Institute. And so when Kellogg got there, he saw, you know, okay, this has real potential for growth. But I really doubt the Adventist leadership really, you know, thought in the same kinds of terms that John Harvey Kellogg did. But over the, you know, next 20 years, he completely, he raised the old building and he built this just incredible, huge Victorian structure that had dining rooms and gymnasiums and, um, uh, uh, you know, the hydropathic facilities. And then, of course, the hospital and all the kind of experimental facilities and the food lab. And, and it was uh, essentially a kind of grand hotel. Um, it was, it had, I forget exactly how many patients or guests it could um, accommodate, but hundreds. And um, people came for, you know, uh, extended periods of time, uh, weeks, sometimes even months to stay at the, at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. It's almost as if, again, as I, I look through the book at the images you had, it was almost as if he made it a temple to his thinking. And I don't mean that as a derogatory thing. It just seemed like he built this as an homage to himself of like, here's my thinking, go. It was just because, I, I mean, it was such a yes. vision of what he had in his mind. Yeah, and I think he, he understood the power of um, of image, of symbol. And he really had uh, these strong ideas about the connections between uh, healthy living and uh, a spiritual life. And he wanted to get these out there. Um, and he knew that if he had a facility that attracted you know, the best of the brightest and in some cases the richest, uh, he'd be able to get his ideas out into the American public. And he, he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams because he began attracting, um, you know, celebrities and politicians and a couple of presidents. And it's just amazing the number of people who, who cycled through the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And each person who came um, was basically taught, I mean, they were treated for whatever disease they had, but they were also taught uh, how to live a healthy life and took that back with them. And some people practiced it, other people didn't. Um, but the Battle Creek idea, as John Harvey Kellogg called it, or biologic living, uh, became pretty well known in this country um, by the first you know, couple of decades of the 20th century. And would you define biological living for us based on his view? Mm -hmm. Well, um, biologic living is, uh, Kellogg believed that um, he always put the put it in in kind of religious terms. So, if you have the Ten Commandments for the moral life, um, God has also created um, the laws of nature for uh, the physiological life. And for him, following the physiological laws was just as as important as honoring the Ten Commandments. And in, in fact, for him, you you really couldn't have a a, a pure soul in an impure body. So both were tremendously important for him. Um, so, you know, as he put it, physical health promotes morality and morality likewise promotes physical health. So it's this real tight connection between mind, body, spirit. And uh, he wasn't the first person to put forward these ideas and he was building on earlier kind of health reformers, uh, but he packages it in such a way. And of course he has this wonderful phrase, biologic living that uh, he managed to get it out into the American public. And it, it really lingers um, throughout most of the 20th century. And was he a, hmm, I'm trying to find the correct word. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll use the term hardcore, but, I can't, but only because I can't think of a better word. Was mm -hmm. he a hardcore Seventh-day Adventist from the beginning, or did he convert into that, or was it more of he saw an opportunity? He had religious beliefs, and he saw an opportunity, and he took it. Well, uh, he was born into a Seventh-day Adventist family, okay. um, so I would say that you know from the beginning he was a, a very devout Seventh-day Adventist. Um, the problem was he, the denomination over over the decades. Um, became much more kind of literalistic and, and fundamentalist in its outlook. 
And Kellogg went the opposite direction. Uh, he wanted a religion that harmonized with science. And um, it, this created real kinds of tensions over the years. And so eventually, and there were other tensions as well, uh, power struggles over uh, the control of the sanitarium with the Adventist leadership. But eventually it got to the point where um, the Seventh-day Adventists disfellowshipped him, essentially Seventh-day Adventist excommunication. And that was in 1907. And at that point, um, Kellogg pretty well abandoned most of the, the distinctive beliefs of Seventh-day Adventism. Wow. Yeah. And yet, was he still involved at the sanitarium at that time? Once they sort of kicked him out of that part of it, he, was he still the director of the sanitarium? Yeah. Well, the thing about Dr. Kellogg was um, he was very astute about power, and he managed to uh, recharter the seventh, uh, the Battle Creek Sanitarium uh, in the late 1890s. And it came completely within his control. And at that point, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination uh, lost control of it. Now, it had begun as a Seventh-day Adventist institution, and it, it had begun with Seventh-day Adventist you know, uh, financial support. Um, but it was always open to anybody who wanted to come. It was non-sectarian. And so Kellogg built on this idea and slowly but surely mm. um, came to control the the sanitarium. So when he broke with the sanitarium, or broke with the Seventh-day Adventists, rather, uh, he still had complete control of the sanitarium. And the Seventh-day Adventists themselves uh, eventually abandoned Battle Creek and uh, reestablished themselves in different parts of the country. Ellen um, G. White, who was the, the prophetess of the foundress of Seventh-day Adventism, uh, had also had very strong health beliefs, and that's where John Harvey Kellogg got his. But she had a different vision of multiple sanitariums, smaller sanitariums around the country, um, more decentralized and not completely centralized on, on Battle Creek. So, yes, John Harvey Kellogg, you know, by the time he was disfellowshipped, kicked out of the church in 1907, uh, he kind of consolidated his control over his Battle Creek Sanitarium Empire, which it really was at that point, because he had not only the sanitarium, but he also had health food businesses, he had exercise equipment businesses, uh, publishing businesses. It's really amazing the the whole kind of enterprise he, he managed to create. And I want to get back to that, but I have to ask about the, when they broke off, was that when one of the sanitariums out in California, in Loma Linda, California, of uh, mm -hmm. started developing that center, they went out to California and, and built the Loma Linda, Linda University as a, no, we're out here now. <laughs> yes. Well, they actually had created other sanitaria around the country um, before the break with Kellogg, um, and Loma Linda was one of those. But after the break with the Battle Creek Sanitarium, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists really put a lot of time and money in developing uh, Loma Linda. And so it's now the the flagship of the Seventh-day Adventists. They have a hospital system, uh, which is one of the largest in the world at this point. So the Seventh-day Adventists never gave up on their on the health teachings, even when they broke with Kellogg. And they continued to develop it. And it has at least as large a presence, you know, in, in kind of the medical landscape today as, as Kellogg's ideas have. And they also have a university in. Um, I can do this. Uh, north uh -huh. of me, I'm in I'm in Northern California, up in Angwin, California, which is yes. a small town east of uh, Saint Helena, California. And I know yes. that only because I did some research projects with a chiropractor up in the town, and I was <laughs> looking for a burger, and it was like couldn't find a burger, and I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> I want a burger, and it was like, oh. And as soon as I knew, I was like, oh, okay, I understand now. That's why. It never That's occurred why. to me. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. No burgers here, son. <laughs> really? Yep. No, um, they had so a. They have they that. Had, yeah. They had a yeah. sanitarium there as well. Um, oh, and, I didn't know about uh, that. Oh. Well, actually, one of Dr. Kellogg's um, half brothers, Merritt Kellogg. Uh, was out there. Um, I forget exactly what the dates were, probably 1870s, 1880s. And um, he was a pioneering doctor in his own right and um, helped create a, a, a sanitarium. Um, I think it's in the 
Sonoma Valley. I'm, I, I, I forget. I'm also from California, and I know that region pretty well. But when I was out there, I wasn't really um, thinking about Seventh-day Adventism and its presence. So, yeah. Right. Well, and one of the one of the peculiar – I'll call it a peculiar facts is that uh, in the fires that we had last year, the town of Paradise burned pretty much mm. down. Yes. And the – because I have friends in the in the church and business associates, what people don't know about Paradise is it was a huge community of Seventh Day Adventists, and they had many retirement centers and many homes because they really believe they're the culture where they really take care of their people, yes, uh, and their followers. And when the church when that burned down, I mean literally the turn, town burned down, mm-hmm. and in that fire, and that community really came together to help them in spite of the amount of destruction that happened yes. in the town, they really came in and, and brought in a whole village of mobile homes and, you know, did as much as they possibly could. So that was another interesting aspect of uh, paradise. I'd spent some time in paradise with a business associate and mm-hmm. it was an amazing community of everywhere you went. I mean, it was like a small village, but it was a big town because everybody yes. knew everybody because of that kind of community feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And, Go ahead. No, there's a great deal of community spirit and a great deal of um, what this sense. I mean, one of the reasons why the Seventh Day Adventists left Battle Creek was Ellen um, G. White felt it was getting to be uh, too big a town, and that kind of small town feeling that she wanted to create in her communities was no longer found there. So to this day, I mean, Seventh Day Adventists, of course, are very sophisticated and urban, etc., but they still have this kind of ideal of taking care of their neighbors. Well, that was the funny thing. Uh, when I was in Southern California doing some work, Loma Linda University, I mean, it's in Southern California, which is huge, ridiculously mm-hmm. huge. Uh, but yet Loma Linda University in that era, area always had a small community feel to it in spite of the monster that Los Angeles is or Southern California is. Yeah, uh, And it still has that... It's a very uh, well. I'd almost say it kind of reminds me of Mormons. I have mm-hmm. yeah. I have friends in that world as well. That same kind of like, here's a community. We're going to help our people. Yep. And, and that's an admirable trait. That's not something that I don't know. That did Kellogg have that? He seems slightly. He did seem slightly. I'll say narcissistic in the sense of he really mm-hmm. had a focus of this monster vision he had, and that was it. Yep. Yeah, I think he had a much more kind of individualistic streak. Uh, He definitely was an autocrat in the running of his enterprises. Um, So he really didn't want to be dictated to by a board or a council. Or uh, For years, he um, took the advice of Ellen G. White, and then when the tensions grew, he basically rejected her as well. Um, So he was very much a kind of rugged individualist. And very different. And again, this is probably one of the reasons why he broke from them in 1907, because he just didn't kind of share the same kind of, uh, what, communitarian ethos that the Adventists did and do. Mm -hmm. Well, as you said, he really (laughs) – I laugh because of back to the – we'll get to the colon thing uh, Mm – that he really (laughs) did – have sciences. I never could quite see how he balanced out his scientific beliefs, right or wrong, but mm-hmm. he really based a lot of his thinking on scientific approach. Yes. And that really isn't the approach that the, the Adventists have. I mean, they're very educated and they're very intelligent, but it's just when it comes to religious beliefs, it's not science first, it's religious belief first, then science. And, and Kellogg seemed to be more science first, then religious. Yes, very much so. And in fact, he really felt that religion should reflect the state of science. Um, and so he was an earlier adopter, early adopter of um, Darwinian evolution, although he never accepted it completely. Uh, and so one of his concerns was, you know, how do I reconcile this with my religious beliefs? And the same thing is when he um, got involved in eugenics after the turn of the century, um, his religion really had to reflect his eugenic beliefs uh, and not the other way around. And one of the reasons, you know, I mean, the Seventh-day Adventists didn't want to have any, anything to do with eugenics because it didn't reflect their religious vision of the world. For Kellogg, it was the opposite. It was really when it came to the harmony of science and religion, 
it was religion and spirituality that would have to adapt and follow the science. I'm going to jump slightly here and ask about some of his protocols. We talk, they talk a lot about water taking – I, I kind of think mm-hmm. that the sanitarium was one of those places where the – from Europe mostly it was – the term taking the waters was mostly from a European culture of benefits of water. But it seems mm-hmm. like they really engaged some side of that at the, at, at the sanitarium. What were some of the water cures or water aspect or take, use, use of water therapy or hydrotherapy mm-hmm. at the sanitarium? Well, hydrotherapy, the, the idea actually goes back to Europe, um, but it really became popular uh, in the 19th century, uh, especially in the Northeast, as a kind of panacea. And the reason it caught on was because medical science at that point was not very well developed. And the primary treatments for almost every disease was either uh, bleeding, so they'd try and rebalance the bodily humors by opening up a vein and draining off a quantity of blood. Or they used something called calomel, which was a a salt of mercury. And they really felt that calomel could cure just about every disease. Um, The problem is both of these treatments, the phlebotomy, the bloodletting, and the calomel, of course, uh, had a tremendous negative impact on the body. So it might cure the disease, but you're left almost a semi-invalid by these treatments. And for whatever reason, I guess they worked well enough, um, people accepted it. And that was the kind of mainstay of a lot of medical practice. But there were a lot of other people who said, no, wait a minute. We, you know, Medicine that leaves the body worse off than it was before it had the disease is obviously, um, this is a problem. So we need to find other cures, other ways of treating disease that are less hard on the body. And this is the point where the water cure pops up. And the idea was that um, water, just pure water, um, could be applied either externally or internally. So um, either drinking large quantities of water or using water as enemas, or um, wrapping yourself in literal wet blankets and um, allowing the body heat to basically Uh, dry the blankets. And the idea was that you were pulling out whatever toxins or diseases or whatever uh, were in the body through this process. And they also believed in baths and showers and um, all sorts of different ways of applying uh, water to the body. And um, I mean, apparently, uh, whether through placebo or whether through the beneficial effects of water, it managed to cure enough people that this was something that really caught on. And for a while there, uh, hydrotherapy, the water cure, was seen as kind of the panacea that was going to replace the kind of what was called heroic medicine, the use of uh, bleeding and um, calomel. And so medical schools popped up that taught hydropathy, like the Hygiotherapeutic Institute. And there were also um, uh, spas that popped up uh, that basically taught and used uh, the water therapy to cure disease. And so this was very popular even before the Seventh-day Adventists adopted it. And, and Dr. Kellogg basically continued this. He, he always thought that the water cure was uh, not the panacea it was supposed to be, but definitely a, a, an important part of his whole kind of treatment regimen. Well, along with that, he also did diet. He put you on a vegetarian diet, didn't he? As part of being at the at the sanitarium, weren't you on a mm-hmm. restri- what people yes. would call a restricted diet? Mm-hmm. Yes, this was really important. And again, this goes back to um, Seventh Day Adventist teaching, and then even farther back um, to the teachings of a guy named Sylvester Graham. And Sylvester Graham uh, lived in the first part of the 19th century uh, in the Northeast. And he was a Presbyterian minister, and he's the guy who really pioneers this idea of, you know, a a healthy soul and a healthy body. And he had this idea that um, if you ate foods like meat or um, grease or caffeine or alcohol or spices, it would heat up the body. And if you heated up the body, then you would burn off your limited kind of supply of vital energy. And this would lead to disease and an early death. 
And he also believed that by hating the body would also lead people into uh, lust and into sin. So there's this close connection between sin and diet that um, uh, uh, Sylvester Graham basically pioneered. So for him, the ideal diet was water and uh, these crackers made out of uh, um, essentially whole wheat, ground up whole wheat, uh, mixed with a little water and then baked until rock hard. And these, of course, are the original Graham's crackers. And that was it. And then uh, you could eat. He didn't like fruit because it had too much sugar, but he kind of liked vegetables, but only if you really cook them until they're completely mushy. Um, So it was a real kind of ascetic diet that he was promoting. So water, you know, graham flour, graham crackers, and then vegetables. And then cutting out all meat, all grease, all caffeine, all he didn't like pickles because he didn't like the vinegar, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so when the Seventh-day Adventists started practicing vegetarianism, they basically started practicing Grahamism. And it became fairly clear that this was a very, very difficult diet um, for people to stay on. Um, It probably just didn't have enough calories to keep people going. So that's one of the reasons why Dr. Kellogg at the sanitarium opened up his food lab and began experimenting with all sorts of vegetarian preparations that people might actually want to eat. And one of these, of course, is the flake cereal, um, which originally uh, was to um, give a vegetarian diet to the sanitarium patients that they would actually want to eat. And he also... He invented peanut butter. Really? Well, he claims to. He claims to. Okay. There's there's a dispute about this, but um, it's entirely possible um, because one of the things that Kellogg he was he was an innovator in terms of uh, you know uh, breakfast cereals, but one of the things that people don't know about him is he was an innovator in fake meats. And of course, fake meats are all the rage these days with the Impossible Burger and all this sort of stuff, but Um, Kellogg was really one of the earliest innovators. And so he really felt that in order to replace the protein that you lose by not eating meat, you could eat nuts. And so he was a huge proponent of of nuts being a large part of the diet. And in fact, he himself um, used to carry around pockets full of nuts, and that's just about all he ate. Um, Because he never wanted to sit down and have a meal. He was always on the go. And so it was easier for him just to have a pocket full of nuts. But he found that by grinding nuts up because of the natural oils, um, you could make interesting pastes out of them. And, of course, one of these pastes is is peanut butter. So there is a – he does claim it. Other people claim it as well. But um, it's entirely likely that he really was the inventor of peanut butter. Um, but beyond that, he also he, he one of his first creations was something called protose, and protose is a fake meat, and it's made out of ground up nuts, peanuts, and uh, wheat gluten and water, and then it was baked into these loaves, and you could cut the loaves into steaks or cutlets or whatever. And the important thing was it it was fairly neutral in flavor, so you could actually season it um, to taste like all sorts of different meats. And apparently this stuff was fairly popular because he just sold tons of it over the years. And uh, it was last manufactured, I think, in 2002. So it it lasted a long time as a meat substitute. Um, Yeah. I've I've eaten my fair share of uh, I forget what the label was because but I can almost see the can of fake sausages. Yes. From based on the SDA, it wasn't an SDA Seventh Day Adventist label, but it was part of that. I think it was labeled Loma Linda Foods. Or, mm-hmm. I can't quite yep. remember what it was a canned something, and it didn't make any difference really whether it was meatballs or sausages or patties. It was all the same thing, just yeah, well, different that- shapes. That stuff was um, it was influenced by, inspired by Dr. Kellogg. And it was a different company. There was a company called Worthington, which that was, was um, yeah. yeah, put together by Seventh Day Adventists, and they were the first people to actually market um, meatless wieners. So you could have 
you know, smart dogs or, you know, um, meatless hot dogs. And apparently that went through various incarnations and wound up becoming Morningstar Farms. Um, and so that kind of stuff can be traced directly back to the food labs of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in, you know, the, the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century. That's amazing. I'm sticking with him yeah. being a visionary. I'm still not necessarily a fan, but he was an amazing <laughs> visionary, truly an amazing visionary. And I well, think this some, is a good – go ahead. Well, he had some great right ideas, and he also had some what turned out to be wrong ideas too. We'll get to that one of those. We'll get to one of those. I'm saving that more toward the close because I don't want to scare people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a great point or moment to discuss the – argument or I don't know exactly what happened between he and his brother with let's clarify Mm -hmm. that John Harvey Kellogg invented the cornflake but it wasn't really he that invented the company or how what how did that evolve that there he worked it with his brother so he'd take it over Mm -hmm. but then they ended up fighting what was all that oh well it's a great story it's a very sad story though um John Harvey Kellogg had a younger brother named Will K. Kellogg, and uh, Will K. Kellogg worked for years as John Harvey Kellogg's um, business manager at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And a lot of people contend that the reason the sanitarium was so successful financially was not because of John Harvey Kellogg, uh, who loved to spend money, but his brother, Will K. Kellogg, uh, who was just a business genius. Now, when John Harvey Kellogg was uh, creating cornflakes. He didn't do it alone. Uh, he was working with his wife, Ella Eaton Kellogg, and his brother, W.K. Kellogg. So there's actually some bit of controversy about who exactly invented uh, the cornflake. I mean, one specific flake product. And a lot of people say that it was W.K. Kellogg who invented the cornflake. Well, in any case, um, the Battle Creek Sanitarium did have a health food company where they did sell limited quantities of these flake cereals. But Dr. Kellogg was really concerned that if his name got onto a commercial product, then he potentially could lose his medical license. And Mm. uh, he had reasons to fear this because he'd already been threatened by the state medical board about his unorthodox medical practice. So he was very worried about this. So he, he wasn't keen on creating a huge, you know, national cereal company to sell these things. This was just a sideline for him. But what happened was there came to the sanitarium uh, a guy named C.W. Post. And C.W. Post was, he was, you know, um, had dyspepsia and all sorts of problems. And um, he didn't like being at the sanitarium, but he really liked Dr. Kellogg's, um, you know, food preparations. So Post and his wife managed to um, get the recipes for a lot of these food products. And he went out and created the CW Post company and started selling kind of knockoffs of Kellogg's products. Um, For example, Postum, which was a fake coffee product. And yeah, uh, um, yeah, and Post Toasties, which is essentially a kind of cornflake. And he made millions. And at this point, W.K. Kellogg thought, okay, we're really losing out here. We could be making millions too. But his brother really didn't want to go out and market this stuff. So there was tensions between the two brothers. And eventually, uh, W.K. Kellogg managed to break off from his brother and create the the Battle Creek Toasted Flake Company and eventually started using the Kellogg name on the box. And for John Harvey Kellogg, that was uh, too much. And so they started fighting over who got the right to use the Kellogg name. And eventually, and this went through the courts, it took years, and eventually WK won the right to use the Kellogg name. But by that time, the relationship between the two brothers was so poisonous that they never spoke to each other ever again until they, you know, until John Harvey's death. It's a sad story. That's too bad. That's too bad. And you're blowing my mind at the same time because when I said yuck about Postum, I meant it. I've I've had Postum. I drank it (laughs) and was like, what is that? That is like not coffee. That's not even what. And so, well, it it, 
it must have been popular because they they made it up until just a few years ago. So there, somebody was out there drinking it. I oh, agree, it was though. Hugely I, popular. I, I yeah. it was hugely popular. I knew people that would drink Postum in the morning. And of course, I also <laughs> knew people that would drink instant coffee in the morning. That's a whole other show. Um, but I mean, it's really mind blowing to me that how, as you talk about it, the number of things that it, I mean, Post CW Post cereal. I mean, that's yeah. mind blowing. That's like my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, Wow, the vision that Kellogg had that spilled out into other people being influenced and making products. I mean, who knows? Somebody, either he or either he influenced the nut butter world because of the popularity of the sanitarium, or, you know, it started out with somebody smashing peanuts on a rock. We don't know. But mm-hmm. it was still yeah. possibly a trend. And the meatless foods in a can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he really, boy, he influenced a lot of people. It's really quite extraordinary. He did, yes. Yeah. And but he really I, I have a point down here. He really did feel about the body as a temple. Is that yeah. accurate? Yes, because he never lost this is one of the problems he had with the the Seventh day Adventist church was that he really felt that the human body was as it says in the Bible, the temple of the Holy Ghost, that God was actually dwelling in the human body. And this would went a little bit too far for the Adventists, and some of Kellogg's language shaded into pantheism, that God and the world were all one. And this became a real problem because Kellogg uh, published a book called The Living Temple, and uh, it basically laid out his theological ideas. And this was just way, way too much for the Adventists. But this idea of the sacrality of the body, the the body is a temple for God or whatever higher power you believe in, has become tremendously popular in the 20th and 21st century. And so this is also an idea that I think really becomes very pervasive among some communities uh, who really see the close connection between health and spirituality. I can't believe I'm going to be an advocate for John Kellogg. Uh, <laughs> I, I may have to sit down and have some postum and think about that. Um, and so, when he wrote the Living Temple, was that before? Was that around the time the sanitarium, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, burned? Was he? Did he write that as a marketing, as a as a fundraising device of some sort, or was that just something he wanted to write? No, he, he it really was a marketing tool um, because in 1902, the Battle Creek Sanitarium burned to the ground and uh, he um, scrambled to find financing to rebuild it. And uh, at this point, the Seventh-day Adventist Church really didn't want to rebuild the sanitarium in Battle Creek. So it was a, a real constant conflict, but he managed to get the financing. And uh, it's amazing because the um, sanitarium burned in May, yeah, I guess it was January, February, March, April, May of 1902, no, February, I'm sorry, and then was actually online and open for business like 15 months later in 1903. So it was amazing that he could line up the financing. And part of it uh, was he wanted to use the Living Temple as a, as a fundraising tool um, to rebuild the sanitarium. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church objected to the theological portions of it and um, really held up its publication. So it really didn't serve the purpose that John Harvey Kellogg wanted it to. Um, but for historians like me wanting to go back and reconstruct his, 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 his religious thinking, uh, it's a wonderful source. You can find it on Google Books these days. And it's fascinating to read because it's a mixture of kind of basic physiology and um, and wellness, and his particular kind of theological ideas. Wow. You're going to make yeah. me go to Google Books. Oh, no, I'm going to read more <laughs> about Kellogg? Oh, my God. Because there is this side. Okay, this is uh, – we're getting closer to the close, so now I can bring this up. One uh-huh. of his beliefs – this really did blow my mind. He had me going along so well, and then this happened, and I'm like, what? He had a belief – that part of the problem in the body, which is funny because this is a trend today talking about inflammation, mm-hmm. because it is a foundation of many conditions. Mm-hmm. However, his solution to inflammation was to remove the colon. Really? Really? Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah, Good. and if you look hard enough on the internet, you'll find a rather gruesome picture of him doing that. Um, 
he there was an idea and it began with a physiologist a guy named Metchnikoff that um, the human body was uh, susceptible to something called auto intoxication and that's the condition when the colon becomes so inflamed and so infected that it begins poisoning the body now this of course is not an idea that's that's you know held anymore by medical science but Kellogg felt that you know if it got bad enough, then a radical solution would be uh, a colonectomy, and so he did perform these these um, these uh, surgeries, um, either partial or complete removal of the colon. Now you can imagine what life would be without the colon. I mean, it's it was you know <laughs> a pretty uh, drastic surgery, and but he performed quite a bit of them, and he swore that in some cases the only cure for auto intoxication, inflammation of the colon, was this radical step. And again, of course, these days nobody would uh, you know um, advocate this kind of um, this kind of procedure. Well, and to me, the surprising thing about that, I mean, it's horrific, A, uh, but B is because he was such a science person mm-hmm. and because he did have this high fiber cornflake for people to eat and he wanted people to have a, you know, I, I would think that the ideal was to have a clean colon. Yes. That his solution was to remove it rather than get them on a good diet and get them hydrated enough so their bowels were moving like regularly, that he didn't get to that crossroads of that. Well, I I, he didn't actually, discover that or. Well, he did actually. I mean, because he was one of the first people to use uh, psyllium seed as a bulk laxative. So the stuff that goes into Metamucil today, um, he was one of the pioneers. Uh, He also recommended um, uh, daily enemas. And so he he felt that, you know, if you couldn't do it through diet, you could do it mechanically through enemas. But yes, clearing out the colon was tremendously important. But he also felt that some people were just too far gone that even these kinds of treatments weren't enough to um, to bring the colon back. And he was a scientist, but on the other hand, um, well, one, medicine has always been a lot of trial and error. And um, the other thing is, is, is Kellogg sometimes got ideas, fixed ideas, that even when the medical science was basically moving away from that, it was difficult for him to give up. Uh, his particular kind of ideology. And so I think that's what was going on with the colonectomies. Um, But he did. I mean, the whole goal of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in part was to teach people good, you know, dietary practices. And that meant, uh, you know, good colon health. (laughs) But you have to have a colon to have good colon health. I mean, I I understand in a short term, I can't believe I'm going to rationalize this, but I understand in a, in a short term, the idea of removing the colon to reduce inflammation would be great. Mm-hmm. But it's like the, de- the it, to me, it's in the same category as giving the people the calomel that, yes, you exactly. may kill the condition, but you also eventually kill the patient. Yes. And it it yeah. seemed like the same thing to me of the colonectomies is, I mean, without a colon, it, you're, it's bad. <laughs> It must be very difficult to live, yeah, because, uh, you know, I don't know how you get enough calories to actually survive. Um, But, I mean, it happens, and so people make those accommodations, but to do so voluntarily, mm, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, 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 you know, the the ideas he didn't quite get to correct. (laughs) We're not right. <laughs> We're not right. Yeah, yeah. That, I have stronger words, but I won't use those on air. That's like, <laughs> wow, man, that is of everything that he did. That's amazing that he got to that. Uh, yeah. And is he? So let's flash forward. We have about five minutes. Mm-hmm. Where did Kellogg end up? I mean, he was such a, a huge story, and I'm glad we really clarified about the cornflakes because I wanted people to understand that the sanitarium Kellogg may have invented the cornflake or been part of the invention, but it wasn't he that had the company necessarily. It was part of the family. That's right. Yeah. And where did he end up or where did, as he went through his years of having the sanitarium and it burned down and he got it rebuilt, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that he And especially in that timeline, that is phenomenal to have such a structure rebuilt in 15 months. 
Yeah, I, it's just remarkable. And there are stories in the Battle Creek papers about how they lit a huge bonfire in the basement of the new building to show it was fireproof. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think you'd get away with that anymore. But what happened was um, Kellogg basically rebuilt his business and it became bigger and better than before. And well into the 1920s, the Battle Creek Sanitarium was um, crowded and, and fully profitable. Um, but at a certain point, Dr. Kellogg, well, in 1930, Kellogg decided that he didn't want to spend winters in Battle Creek. So he moved to uh, Miami Springs, Florida for the winters. And he started up a branch sanitarium called the Battle Creek Sanitarium Miami Springs. And the building's still there. And it's, it's pretty much in this, in the, you know, it, it, it hasn't been renovated. It's in the same shape. It's now an a, a, um, assisted care facility. Um, and there he spent his summers. So increasingly he lost control to a board of trustees of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And at a certain point, they decided, the board of trustees decided that the sanitarium was so profitable, they were going to build on this huge twin tower extension, which they did. And they opened the, those up for business just before the crash of the stock market in 1929. And the Battle Creek Sanitarium never recovered from that. Um, it went into bankruptcy in the 1930s. And eventually in 1942, it was sold to the federal government, which turned it into a, uh, an army hospital. And Kellogg himself, um, he, he basically spent more and more time uh, down at the, the Miami Battle Creek Sanitarium and uh, tried to regain control and eventually did of the original Battle Creek Sanitarium. But by then, he was just too elderly and too frail to really make a go of it. And so he eventually dies in 1943. So he's 91 at that point. Um, and, you know, got a huge obituary in the New York Times. He was still a very famous figure. But since his death, you know, his, his, his reputation has really faded, and people really don't know a whole lot about kind of the remarkable career of John Harvey Kellogg. Well, as I say, that was really, the, except for the colon thing, I mean, there are probably other areas. I mean, he had life therapy at the sanitarium in the yes. 1800s. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Yes that he had the vision to have light therapy. Again, believe it or not, or whatever his angle on it was, he had the thought of, oh, light therapy. Wow. Well, he, he actually made the connection between uh, depression and sunlight, which I think is quite remarkable. Wow. And so he created this, um, what is kind of a, a proto tanning bed. Now it wasn't for tanning, it was for light therapy, but it looks like a tanning bed. And it's this very ornate cabinet that somebody would lie in. And it was surrounded on the interior by just ranks after, rank after rank of incandescent light bulbs. And happily, there's a little museum uh, called the John Harvey Kellogg Discovery Center that's run by the Seventh-day Adventists in Battle Creek. And they have the original light bed. Uh, and it's just really quite remarkable. So he made these connections that, you know, later in the 20th century, you know, people started talking about seasonal affective disorder, and he was basically treating it um, way back at the beginning of the century. See, I, I really, it is a remarkable story in the, in his visionary capacity, and for, to get his vision out there in a way that blew my mind as I was reading the book. I mean, it's just like him, dislike him. Not, I don't have that as much as. I'm not pro-refined carbohydrates, and that's all of this story. And plus, I think Mr. Graham would be flipping in his grave knowing that people are making s'mores out of his grandfather <laughs> yeah. today. Um, exactly. So, and it's the same thing with the Kellogg. When it was original, you know, it was probably a whole fiber grain. Now it's a, a bad refined carbohydrate. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really quite amazing the amount of vision that he had and got expressed into the world. Yes. Is really ex that is extraordinary. Uh, yes. You know, light therapy in the 1800s. Really? I know doctors now who still don't get light therapy. <laughs> so it's really quite amazing. Um, it I'm is. amazed to find that we're we're here where I ask you where I <laughs> I always think you should consult or do webinars, but that's not what you do. So where would you like people to find John Harvey Kellogg's story, your book on John Harvey Kellogg? 
Well, the book was uh, published by uh, Indiana University Press, so you can go to their website. But, of course, it's also available on Amazon.com. And the book is available in, in hardback and also a Kindle edition. So if you want to read it on your reader, uh, it's available for download. I highly recommend it. It's an amazing story. I mean, we've talked a lot about Kellogg, but, I mean, it really is an extraordinary story. I I kind of say I respect him, although maybe I don't know. I can't. Maybe a slightly <laughs> softer word of that. I, uh-huh. I think I think it truly is that his visionary capacity and his capacity to get that vision into reality is amazing to me. Uh, of how much he did in the world and influenced the world. So I think that it part is, is really quite extraordinary. It is remarkable. And I'm always just kind of blown away by his energy, his capacity to work, which was just extraordinary. Yeah, it is really amazing. Pocket full of nuts, and he just kept walking. It was was just extraordinary. (laughs) All right, thank you so much. That was great, uh, Brian. My pleasure. Everybody have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.